Thanks for tuning in to the CoLive podcast, where we explore learnings, insights, and discussions with co-living operators and professionals from around the world. If you're a first-time listener on our podcast, just a quick reminder that CoLive is the world's largest co-living association with the goal to connect, educate, and empower co-living professionals. Today's episode has been recorded during one of our monthly meetups, where we discuss a wide variety of topics related to co-living. To join our network or find out about future meetups and other events, please visit colive.org. That's C-O-L-I-V.org. Let's hop right in to today's episode. Perhaps we're going to start with Chris and then Matthew can follow. Yeah, sure. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for the introduction, uh, Virginia, and thank you for the invitation. It's great to be here. Great to see uh, so many faces. Um, some familiar and some new, which is always the best way. So uh, uh, delighted to be here. Uh, my name is Chris Holloway. I'm the uh, Director for Business Development for GSA. GSA is Global Student Accommodation, which means we do accommodation for students globally. And uh, we have a very narrow focus in that sense. Um, so uh, it was an interesting comment of Frank's earlier that student is a subset of co-living. Uh, I think that's something we can get into and debate at some point. But yeah, absolutely, uh, you know, we have a, a sort of really kind of focused approach to our things, but we do it in a wide geographical um, space. So that's me. I'll hand over to Matt. Great to be here. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, likewise, uh, really nice to be here in a very interesting subject. So I, I look forward to learning as much as I do. Uh, parting my own knowledge on this subject. Um, so I'm Matt, I work for Greystar. Um, Greystar are a fully integrated real estate company. For those of you that don't know us, know us our primary lines of business are our investment management, um, our development and our um, operational management. And globally, we have over 740,000 um, units um, that we manage, some of those owned, of course, some of those third party mandates. Um, and We've been kicking around since I think 19, the mid 90s. So uh, there's an awful lot of experience and muscle memory. I've not been around since the mid 90s with Graystar. Um, but um, yeah, we work across student, multifamily, and other emerging um, asset classes. So it's great to be here. My role at Graystar is marketing. Um, and I have the pleasure of sitting across our European functions. And my role basically is to look at pains and gains, look at opportunities and how we basically can scale our platform so that we do the right thing in every location. And we only make that mistake once, basically, and we won't make that mistake in a location. So we've been operating in that mindset for about 15 months. I'm the least well-traveled European lead because it's all been from this room, I'm sure, as all of us. Um, but yeah, it's a pleasure to be here and join this conversation. Uh, over to Brian. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Matt, for the introduction. And thanks to Virginia and the CoLift team for inviting me along. Delighted to be uh, participating in such an auspicious uh, grouping and, um, and you know helping the conversation around co-living on. So... My name is Brian. I uh, work for a business called Roundhill Capital. Roundhill is uh, what we would, we would refer to vertically integrated investor, owner, operator, developer of purpose-built student accommodation, as well as other residential asset classes like uh, co-living we've been working on for a while, uh, like residential accommodation in, in general. Uh, and uh, 
I guess, regular apartments that you'd rent in the street. So quite a large landlord across Europe, a, a little similar to Matt. So we do a bit of what Chris does at Greystar in the student side and a little bit of what uh, Matt and, and sorry, Chris at GSA and a little bit of what Matt at Greystar does in the more residential side. We also work on logistics and we have uh, prop tech investments. So I've been working in purpose-built student accommodation for over 15 years now, since uh, pretty much the, the, the sector began in the UK. And uh, one of a, of, a, of a small group that's been doing it for so long. So delighted to be here. Happy to answer any questions and, and hopefully we'll have an interesting, uh, interesting conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, we have like three superstars. So let's make the most of this panel discussion. So perhaps we can start with the impacts on the student housing property from COVID. Uh, would you like to start, Chris? Yeah, sure. Um, I think from my perspective, there's been four main impacts of COVID. Uh, so one is on the practical operations of the buildings. One is on design for future buildings and retrofitting current buildings. Uh, the third one is in the area of student demand. And the fourth is around public policy. And so, I mean, the practical things are things like, you know, how often we clean, how we clean, what we clean, PPE, monitoring staff, welfare, uh, creation of sort of isolation suites where people have tested positive and those sorts of things. And then from the design perspective, um, I think there was a rush at the early part of COVID, everybody assuming that um, studios would just become the norm and, and people would rush away from other types of rooms, um, wanting just that kind of bubble of isolation. And I think that's an interesting one maybe for the other guys to chime in on as well. I, uh, we see a regression to the mean and, and everybody you know, going back to, to multiple different types of room types, but I'm, I'm happy to be corrected on that. Um, and I, one thing I do think will um, become more important though is the question of bed bath parity. And this is a really a major thing, particularly in America, where you, know, you may have four, five or six um, you know, beds in one unit sharing one or two bathrooms. And we're seeing some trends from universities, you know, requiring that bed bath parity be one to two or, or, or even one to one in some cases. So I think that might be a, a changing thing coming out of COVID. Um, in terms of demand, I think, again, you know, really three things. One is a shift to blended learning. We've seen that, it, you know, there is going to be a return to face-to-face -face learning. It's not going to be just um, online, but you know, how do we cope as an industry with blended learning and what that might mean for, for flexible contracts as people come for shorter periods rather than necessarily for a whole academic year, or even potentially to move to different institutions to do different parts of their learning. Um, and then clearly there's the question of international travel and the, and the full return to international travel. Um, and then I think that, you know, in the final area with regard to public policy, you know, looking at this from a global lens, you know, some countries have responded differently um, and some faster than others. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see um, how governments do respond, you know, firmly going forward into the potential for, you know, other types of force majeure events in the future. And um, I think, you know, the, the guys, I hope, will agree with me here. It's been a pretty good time to be globally diversified as some of our businesses have performed well, um, it, you know, US being a key one in that sense, and some have performed badly. 
Um, and I think, you know, Spain is probably one of the worst hit from a kind of financial impact perspective. So, yeah, there's my, my ideas. So, Matthew, would you like to follow? Uh... Yeah, sure. So my expertise is in direct to consumer. So I don't necessarily have the same holistic view as, uh, as, as Chris and Brian do in their roles. So, uh, but that said, I live and breathe consumer demand and have done for about 15 years. So I'll kind of talk to it from that angle. So, you know, when we look at the impact of student housing from COVID, I think the first thing I like to do is remind myself in those moments when potentially the leasing numbers haven't been so strong, which is what a resilient asset class it is. And let's not forget that, you know, we go on to do our further education to be the best version of ourselves. So that isn't going to change. We all want to grow. We want to develop. So there was some nervous times, I would say, last year. And Chris is absolutely right. We, it was very comforting to be able to leave a call from a, a particular portfolio or um, uh, property that was struggling last year and then go and join another call where someone was doing quite well. Otherwise, it could have been quite, uh, quite dark days indeed, I think, for some of them. Um, but it's an extremely resilient asset class. I mean, when, it, when we talk about our London assets as well and the number of those um, high-profile institutions that are there, we're already seeing that market bounce back in terms of its desirability. Those statistics coming out from UCAS give you great courage. And actually for our chapter portfolio, which is Lon London Zone 1 and 2, uh, the kind of best leasing performance we had was the academic year of, um, uh, what was it, 19. And we're only a few percentage points away from that. Now, cancel flights from China and things like that, which we, you know, we monitor every week and we may find some cancellations come in. Um, but in general, we're seeing it bounce back from a desirability perspective. The numbers are picking up. But what the impact will be is a force for good, which is basically to really reevaluate why you exist. Yes, you are a room from its most objective functional basis. You are, you are a room, you are an accommodation, but we all talk about, and we all want to be a force for good with experience. But now we just get to dovetail and blend between this physical space and this digital space. And I actively encourage everyone to stop referring to it as digital and physical. And it's just like an omni experience now. So I think what comes out of this is this, intentional design which again Chris referred to from whether it's the physical building whether it's the spaces events that you're curating or even your staffing model and how you're actually going to approach maybe moving into more of a far more fluid hospitality lens than a traditional residential model that may have existed before so that's my take on it um Brian uh, yeah, well, let me approach it from a slightly, slightly different angle. And, and Matt mentioned the word resilience, which is really what's been key to student accommodation. So as, as Chris rightly, rightly identified, pockets of uh, dislocation, there were pockets of uh, residences where students just weren't coming. Our students had come and then were going home and demanding rent refunds. And, and there's a lot of pressure, particularly in the UK market, where uh, and Spanish markets, actually, where, where, where student accommodation is more of a transient uh, place to live. So in the UK, you, if you're a UK undergraduate, which is still 80, well, 70 to 80% of students in purpose-built student accommodation. You go to university for 40 weeks or 44 week weeks, and then you go home to your parents' house in the summer. And that's not everyone does that, but 
95% of UK undergraduate students tend to follow that profile profile because it's transient. You, you kind of like, there's no lectures. So why would I go to university? Why would I go and stay in my accommodation? And by extension, why am I paying my rent? And next thing, the students are out there um, demanding rent refunds and and, and the, well, yeah, some dominoes toppled in the UK with the, uh, the larger providers, United and IQ, giving refunds. Everybody else was kind of swept up in a wave of refunding students' rent. And, and completely understandable from a student's perspective, uh, uh, we're not yet, so why should we be paying rent? So legally, they were meant to. Morally, they didn't feel they had to. And the, the, the truth about what ended up happening was somewhere in between. Um, in that period, though, lenders were super supportive. The whole world was in a pandemic. Investors were actually super supportive as well in, in the main. So investors were tending to, uh, my experience at least, was were coming to us and saying, hey, we, we think it's reasonable for the students to be, used to be getting some loans in some cases. And so all of those things were happening, but they were very dynamic, very complicated, often happening on a case-by-case -case basis. And the, But what fundamentally was happening is that revenue stream that investors are relying on was becoming disrupted. Now, investors coming into student accommodation are paying what we would refer to as low yields for these assets, which means you don't get that, that massive when you invest in purpose-built student accommodation because it's viewed as a reasonably low-risk low risk investment, a reasonably low-risk asset class to invest in. And But what we found is that those same investors were also, also investing in else. They were also investing in retail. They were also investing in offices. And those were three sectors that were far worse affected than student housing. So I think from the beginning of the of the pandemic, we've been of the view, certainly I've been of the view, and I think there's been a bit of a, a thought process in the sector which says it will all be fine in September 2021. And actually, what's happening with regard to the, uh, the lettings process at the moment, and certainly we're seeing this across, across Europe, but most acutely in the UK, which is the biggest, the most affected country by COVID at the moment, is we're seeing those lettings come in thick and fast and the resilience of the asset class shining through. So Matt, Matt and Chris both nodding there as they're both seeing, we're all seeing, all seeing really strong occupancy in the UK and in Europe in general ahead of September 2021, because the theory was that universities want students to go to university, local governments want universities to go to, to students to go, national governments want them to go, certainly private providers want them to go. And more than anything, 18-year-olds are desperate to go to university, get away, get away from home, all the great experience and participating in a new community that, that, that we all wanted to do at 18. And I suspect most people on the call did the same. And so, so that's what we found. So, but, but the reason I mentioned the investors is because investor sentiment, which is what drives the sector, are people going to invest in the sector, they, they are continuing to do so in many cases in institutions that viewed student as on the, on the risky end, would have preferred to, to, to buy a hotel and lease it to a, to a hotel operator. Actually, that hotel income has gone to zero, whereas the student income, worst case scenario, has gone to 50 or 60%. So actually, all ends up when you, when you measure, measure a hotel student or you measure a retail against student where the, the, mark, the bottom's fallen out of retail in general. These people have massive allocations to invest cash in, in real estate, and they're getting increasingly comfortable with operational regional real estate. Students at the forefront of that. It's no longer really an alternative operational real estate asset class. And co-lifts co coming, kind of coming up on the heels. And, the, the, and as, uh, there's definitely momentum and appetite from investors to, to invest in the living theory. The sort of um, you know, student accommodation for older people, if you will, is, in shorthand. People like that. But the, the challenge it is, the challenge is like with students 15 years ago, 
educating municipalities, educating local authorities, educating planners, educating tax authorities, explaining to the authority in Lisbon that you don't require necessarily one parking space per room, which is making make schemes unviable. All of this process, student, student went through a period of time, calling now needs to do it faster, but investors are, are, are there to do it. That's all for me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, so this leads us to the next question, right? So uh, the word resilience, the occupancy, uh, uh, the government decisions, uh, the university, what the student wants because their desire doesn't disappear. They want to travel, they want to get out, as Brian says, from home. Um, but also uh, like the programs are changing online and offline and and this also might change everything. So my question is like, what really matter more to students? Cost, facilities, communities? Um, what are, ha have you seen uh, communities change uh, through COVID? We can, uh, we can start with Matthew, uh, if you want, and Brian will follow. Yeah, sure, happy to. Um, so how we've seen the communities change through COVID is really just the speed and agility of which they adopted the digital platforms, basically. So um, we across our, uh, for the purpose of this particular question, I'll talk uh, to our UK student business and our Spanish business. We do also have um, student properties in the Netherlands as well, but for this specific question. Um, and both of them have existing or had pre-COVID existing um, centralized events and welfare offerings. But it's fair to say most of that would be very physical, like in person, basically. Um, so both of those teams reacted very fast within the first couple of months and created or augmented their existing platform with this online resident experience. When it, when it comes to Reza in particular, um, the actual content that was generated was from um, the residents themselves. So in the world of marketing, we all talk about user-generated content. It's the best thing ever. It doesn't cost you anything. Plus, aren't they truly your ambassadors when they're you know, creating some content for you? And then you just go above and beyond. And then these um, residents in resident housing were basically um, demonstrating their skills, whether it be online cooking, whether it would be like doing DJ sessions live, and they were educating the other students. And we were averaging for the first couple of months around 250 people um, giving up their time to watch this through, um, the, um, through the actual residents themselves. So the community for Reza shifted from one of, I guess, a centrally controlled experience platform to one that was then physically handed or digitally handed over, I guess, and physically executed in their rooms by our residents. Um, and then in chapter, a similar thing happened, but we didn't launch exactly the same thing. Um, and we created an online platform there. And we tested because the whole point is we could make some assumptions. We started from a position of bias. If we do this, this will happen. Um, but the lesson that we learned was start with a really small question of yourself and then validate it. So in the UK student business, we created an online platform and we were mixing live or on-demand classes and different content. Was it Wednesday night that was popular? Was it the fact that randomly you could learn knitting or you could learn like the ukulele? And we were just experimenting with those things. And again, I think within three months, we had about 1,400 people engaging with that. So how the community changed really was one that they just 
shifted to this digital presence. We also noticed, and Brian referenced it, but in our UK business, a lot of that demand, or sorry, within chapter is international. So it's fair to say that during the summer, a lot of people returned home that normally would probably still stay with us. And what we also were able to observe, and when we talk about community, is that these people were interacting with the content when they went back home. So it wasn't necessarily just those people that were in the building. So the way the community adapted was to move online. I think that's fairly obvious to say, but some real world examples of actually what we mean by that. And the lasting impact that's had with us is we now are extremely delighted to be starting up our experience programs again. But this uh, acknowledgement of the non-physical, digital, remote or in-person, just this blend, we now have an experience platform, which is uh, omni-channel, basically. That's not a one-trick pony. We're not going to stop doing that now. But equally, we're not going to um, stop our investment in our physical events. We've amplified the whole experience, basically, and started to join that up with a bit of a, a European view. And then what really matters to students, quite honestly, what I love about working at Greystar is we ask them. Um, so again, we have our own ideas. Some of that is known, some of it isn't, but we regularly ask our residents and whether that's like high volume surveys, which is fantastic for one thing, or real sort of like qualitative conversations. Uh, for our resident portfolio, for example, we have 150 ambassadors across those assets. So they're a great source of truth around what's going on and that opinion. And really, we talk about cost, but it's value. And when COVID first hit, the value that you were assessing your space, your room, there was an instant disadvantage to the way potentially that it was perceived before. But now that you've repositioned what you do, and perhaps you've always done that, but you just talk about yourself in a slightly different way beyond the functional, um, we now have that people that seem to have a greater connection with our uh, emotional and well-intentioned route to just creating a space for you basically that means you, you can be you on a good day you can be you on a bad day your room our cinema room is not the be all and end all we hope that it adds to your experience so the way we think it changes is people's assessment of value changes but we believe that we've changed our assessment of the value that we offer i think yeah listen Matt's done some great work with Greystar over the over the pandemic, but goodness me, hasn't it been awful for, for students? Um, we've been we've been spending the last fifteen years since we've been since I've been involved in the sector. When I when I first when I first came into what student accommodation there was, had a reception area behind a little window uh, in a corridor, and it was like a in the UK we'd say it was like a doctor surgery where, or like a hospital in, in, in Europe where. The, the staff are being protected from these people that are beyond the, the, the barrier. And, and in, in fairness, to a point, uh, I can appreciate why. And, and my first residence, I opened as a manager, there was 695 18-year-olds in that residence. And at that time, back in 2005, they were in New, I was, this was in Newcastle, which is a, a well-known party town in the north of England. And those students would all go to the pub on, pub on student. They would all come back at two o'clock in the morning and it would be... You know, you leave a nightclub with 25 bouncers and my one security guy is there dealing with them when they come back. So so I do have a I have an understanding why it was like that. But as the students change their 
patterns and their needs and their requirements and in many ways are, are more responsible and focused on academia and, and fitness and a lot more things than, than just drinking alcohol like they were in the past. We've been, we've been, been knocking us down. So the latest iteration of the, uh, of the, the Nido reception area that we've been working on um, has standing desks and promotes interaction with students and promotes students standing at 90 degrees to staff looking at the same computer and, and just, just, just knocking down barriers and creating these amazing communities. And that's what we are telling students are doing. That's what we are doing. And then these students who arrived in September, um, gosh, 19, um, they, they're suddenly confronted with barriers that were, were establishing perspex screens and, and creating artificial partitions between them and the staff. And, and it, it's, it's just been a hard, it's just hasn't been the best experience. It hasn't been what students want going closely and what we as NEO, uh, GSA, the student housing company, Nexo, uh, Graystar, um, uh, I think the brands that's going to help me out in a minute. Um, but, uh, but we've all been sort of on the same path of trying to create these amazing communities where students want to live. And uh, exactly like Matt, at Nido, we turned our uh, uh, events process, which is quite extensive. We turned all of that online and it was really well attended. And it was the strangest things that were well attended. So we, the, the best event, uh, best attended event by far was a flower arranging class. Um, so better than all the yoga classes we did, all the hit, hit, hit training classes, people just gravitated towards flower arranging. And there were, there were hundreds of people live streaming on our Insta feed, the flower arranging class. So, but it opened up, um, I guess, recognizing that this is a community-wide problem and we'd managed to pivot online really quickly. We opened that up to other students uh, at other buildings. We created programs with, with other providers and in different countries and said, hey, if your students want to access our events program, it's free for all to access on Instagram. So just come along and log in and, and, and help yourself. And let's, let's kind of work together to, 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 as, a, as a global student committee to help the students through these, these tough times. So, so yeah, Matt's absolutely right. The, 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 the student community point has gone, like it's gone online. What we've tried to do when we were putting up these barriers is try and create what we would call demountable barriers. So we could put them up and take them down again as, as maybe this COVID situation changes. We need to safeguard students and stuff as best we can. And, and we, we're trying to deal with it in ways like this. But of course, you're dealing with large numbers of students. So when we were on the six o'clock news, because the building in Coventry had 350 students having a party on the ground floor, you kind of, it's difficult to legislate for that kind of thing. But it's good to see with my 18 year old hat on again, it's good to see that rebellious nature of students can still, uh, can still shine through. Awesome, uh, guys, thanks. You really left me nowhere to go, I think. But I just would like to support, you know, amazing stories that we're hearing from both Matt and from um, uh, Brian. I guess I can only really add one thing that we did slightly differently to what Matt was describing when we when we did the shift onto um, um, digital events and so on, was that um, we didn't do it per country. We did it as a whole global platform. So you were getting actually interaction um, asynchronously as well as synchronously across well that sounds like a terrible word but I hope you understand what I mean um, uh, from around the world which was which was really an interesting um, uh, I guess subset of what Matt was talking about um, it, since we're talking about community though I'm going to flip it slightly because one you know major thing did happen to us as a community of practitioners during um, COVID and that was that we all kind of came together um, rather than as competitors, 
but as this community of practitioners, Brian kind of just alluded to it. We were all in it together as well. The students were all in it together. So were we. So were our investor owners. We had to find a way through this. And we had to find you know, a, a way to, to respond best to the kind of shifting tides of of public policy that I referred to earlier, but also to the, you know, the market demands that was particularly prevalent in, in the UK, as Brian mentioned. Interestingly, it was the opposite, by the way, in the US, where the US leader quite clearly, which is um, ACC, American Campus, uh, I can't remember the other C, but communities, um, they came out and, and they did the opposite. They said, no, we're not giving you your money back. And so everybody kind of, all of us sort of more minnows in the market breathed a sigh of relief that we could then just blame it on ACC um, for, not, uh, for not giving money back. So, so I think that, you know, we came together and I remember particularly working with Greystar, in fact, um, with their lead in Spain as we were faced with changing um, policy on an almost daily basis. And, and Juan and I were, you know, working together, sharing our legal opinions from different law firms um, you know, completely openly and freely and so on to try and find the way through. So, it, yeah, that, the only thing I can add to what the guys have said is, is that this was a community of practitioners as well. Yeah, so there we are, the importance of communities and, and uh, working all together, investors, operators, students, and uh, being more aware than ever about the, um, the needs of the students and that is not just uh, uh, the, the cinema room, or uh, but it's more uh, the human part and, and connecting and, and understanding their needs, especially during the COVID. So great points. Thank you very much, the three of you. And uh, following this as well, sustainability is, uh, is, is right now a trend topic and, and something that also the students are looking at when, when choosing a PBSA and also uh, some uh, some regulations are coming. So I would like to ask to the panelists why is ESG now so important and how is the student housing sector adjusting to the growth in ESG requirements and the impacts on communities? So perhaps we're gonna start with Brian, please. Yeah, well, I'm pleased you asked me that, Virginia. Um, so ESG is, is, for those who don't know, kind of stands for environmental, social and governance. And it's a, it's a it's a framework for investors and operators and generally businesses generally to act responsibly towards the environment, towards their customers and towards how they comport themselves uh, on, a, on a daily basis doing business. So, so it's come over the last 10 years. It, it was a bit of a fringe activity 10 years ago and now it's bang up to date and it's in every investor meeting that we have. People want to talk about ESG. And I think I, I said a few years ago at a, at a conference, conference that um, Listen, we're all humans sharing a planet, and we want to we want it to be a good planet for our children, our children, our children's children, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we want to do good things. and And I've been delighted that within the sector, we've we've got a community of people who 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 are very like minded. So we we fight hard on the pitch, maybe for lettings and in the on the sales on the sales market here. But actually, when we get to the pub afterwards, everybody's a decent person wanting to do a decent thing for the community. So that's all that's all super exciting. So. Inherently, as a sector, we've got the right people in there who are focused on this. We've now got investors who are super supportive and willing to invest in this as well. And uh, and as a sector, what we're doing is very is very sustainable. First of all, so looking at looking at the environmental impact of what we do, we put more people in small in smaller space 
in super efficient buildings that don't cost a lot to run or, or, or for hot water or anything else. So the very nature of what we do, and we tend to put them in city centers and the people, and we don't have car parking uh, in, the, in the main, and people tend to walk to university. So from, an, from an, a sustainability perspective, from an environmental perspective, it's really, really positive what we do. And then from a social perspective, we've already talked about how we build communities and we help people um, um, through journeys as they make this transition from maybe the family home to living in this kind of slightly more uh, uh, managed environment to uh, moving to an apartment or, or, uh, or into, the, into the, the regular rented uh, sector. So where we can't, where we, we organize their bills, we'll offer, um, if they have a problem, they can come to reception, get maintenance dealt with, they can, uh, we put them together as a community and reduce them to friends. We some, Sometimes we deal with people in crisis uh, and we'll signpost them to other services or we can, we can help them with a conversation. And so, so all, all those things we, we think are just really good for those young people to help them in, in, that, uh, in that transition phase. And then from a governance perspective, it's 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 a lot to do, a lot of legislation's coming down the track now, track now. So you just, and and it's changing all the time. So things that people could get away with 20 or 30 years ago, you can't get away with today. So governance is all about good professional management, uh, making sure that um there's no kind of um people, no brown envelopes changing hand for land change, lands sales and, and things moving in the black economy. Um, rather than traveling all the way through the, uh, the, the tax system. So, so uh, all ends up, uh, I think we're really well placed as a sector. Helpfully, uh, in, in general, the assets are so big. There's a massive spider on my ceiling. Sorry, I've just seen it. Um, the, uh, I'm okay with spiders. Um, the, uh, as a sector, because we're institutional scale, so most of these assets are over 25 million euros in value, more, most of them are over 250 beds. Therefore, the investors and the banks are super legitimate and so everybody all the way through the frame frame is, is is aligned to delivering institutional grade standards of governance so so esg is massive it's always been there it's now got a framework every one of us has esg champions within within our firms and um, they're challenging us into to drive forward investors are challenging us to drive forward but as individuals we just want to do the right thing and we want to we want to you know improve the, improve the planet we got given that's my kind of that's my uh, speech from the pulpit. Um, Chris, what do you think? <clears throat> um, no, I look, completely agree with what you said, Brian. I think, you know, from my perspective, it's driven by three things. It's investor-driven, which Brian's just talked about eloquently. It's um, also market-driven. So as, a, as we've gone through this sort of changing of the generation into the so-called Gen Z, and we look forward to Gen Alpha, um, their, their expectations are that uh, the brands that they interact with will behave in appropriate ways towards the planet and uh, and, um, uh, and to all sort of areas of um, social um, uh, consequences and, and things like that as well. So, you know, whether it's about diversity and inclusivity and the acceptance of all those different things, whether it's about um, employment law and respect of these um, different things, as well, I think that's a really important thing to bear in mind. But finally, I think, you know, as Brian's also said, it's really about personally driven. And, you know, it's, it, you know, how can I separate what I believe as a person at home or in the pub, as Brian said, and when I come into the office, I have to bring that personal commitment to these things with me into the office. Otherwise, I'm inauthentic 
in the workplace and I'm not really creating a satisfying life, not, not just for myself, but for everyone I work with as well. So ultimately it boils down to this for me. If we don't do it and we don't do something about the planet and about the society we live in, it's game over. We might as well all just quit, go home, put a cold flannel over our heads and wait to uh, uh, pop our clogs. We've got to do it and we've got to do it all together. Sorry, Chris. Yeah. We've got Sander from the Netherlands on the phone, Chris. Uh, you might have to explain popping, popping clogs. Well said. Sorry. <laughs> uh, the, the joy of going last, actually, is I think you get to be a lot more succinct than when you go first. So um, I, I agree is the short answer. I think it's always been here. No one wants to be the bad guy. And in general, I, yes, Gen Z is more uh, orientated to um, brands with, with purpose and mission and value. But I think we have always been aligned ourselves to purpose, mission and value. So there's just a, a new consciousness, a new awareness, a new conscientiousness, which from a marketing perspective means that you have to address that. But I just really want to echo what Brian and Chris said, which is, the the good guys, the ones that don't want to leave the planet behind in a worse state than when they entered it, have already been working towards this. I think some of the, the frameworks, and I'm not an expert in these particular frameworks, particularly on the governance piece, um, but when we look at environmental, um, I think of uh, Chapter Lewisham for us, which four years ago, um, we did a, a modular construction Um and the footprint uh, that that had in terms of the local emissions, the disruption to the site, the amount of time you were on there. To me, when I joined Greystar six years ago, basically within 18 months of that, I could see an organization that cared about its footprint on the environment. Yes, there are commercial benefits, et cetera, but trust me, those conversations were largely down to also the environmental impact and what we leave behind. And then my only example today that is non-student, and I apologize for that, Virginia, because we are talking about student today. But when it comes to social responsibility, we talk about, of course, within our buildings. Uh, but at Greystart, occasionally we get to also do a proper, true placemaking effort. So on our multifamily side, um, we have a scheme called Greenford Key. Um, it's it's over way out west basically it's near um it's uh, it's near greenford obviously near Sudbury hill um and that used to be an old gsk site and therefore for the local community it was inaccessible you could not walk through there and it looked fairly depressing because it kind of hadn't been used for about 20 years we are now building a sense of place we've opened that up with the canal and this summer um if people just check out the instagram story it's just me working for this company, I guess, is what I'm saying is this gives me a nice feeling to then see what we did with the summer series and kids were watching from the local school, coming to watch Gruffalo on the outside cinema. This doesn't cost you anything. Then they do nature walks. They do cleaning of the streets and stuff like that. So I, I already believe between like your, your Nidos and your GSAs and stuff, you've already got these examples. But now there is just a, a, a quite rightly, a label for it where you have to focus on it but i do believe that the good guys have been focusing on this for quite some time anyway i could just add to that matt thanks for that i just want to say that it, one thing that i really admire and as we look 
um, you know, and, and Unite are a good example here on this. You know, they're absolutely, they know they're the market leader. They are absolutely front and center with all these ESG things. They produce good research. They produce good papers. And I think that, you know, as an industry, as I said earlier, it's not about necessarily competing with them or competing with Nido or competing with Graystar. It's about working on this together uh, and being happy that your competitors are taking a leadership stance in that space. So I congratulate you guys and, and uh, let's, let's get it done together. Yeah, I'm very, uh, I'm very glad that you guys are sharing the, all the, the, the values uh, in these regards because it's very important and, and no need to apologize, Matthew, because he's, this is all related to student housing, to community, to the well-being of the, of the students. So, um, so thank you for, for sharing this, uh, these insights. And so to follow, I mean, you already are explaining the values uh, that you, that of your, of the, of Graystar, of GSA, of uh, Roundhill. But I would like to ask you uh, what value uh, does, for instance, uh, Graystar place on its communities, uh, Matthew? And then we sure. can follow with, with Chris and Brian. Yeah, um, well, well, mindful of probably the varied audience on here as well. So I'll answer it for a couple of layers. So um, commercially and objectively, you can measure the power of your community in the retention rates and you can, re uh, you can measure it in referrals and you can measure it in basically your cost of acquisition. Over time, you're, you, know, you will create these brands, you will create this brand promise, and then you need to deliver on it. And effectively, you can measure the power of your community through very commercial outcomes. I obviously do like to look at it beyond that as well and, and, and feel good about it. Um, and how we value our community is, well, first of all, we have like 740,000 beds across the world. And we take our responsibility very, very seriously that we have this global footprint. And you see that time over time this sense of community exists and you can kind of hit three key areas across whether it's student across whether it's young professional whether it's like urban living whether it's more suburban living or whether it's active adult we're basically starting to spot these trends so how we value the community from a pure investment perspective of course uh, we've got leasing how much of that is retention We've got referral, but what we are starting to look at, and my previous role before joining Graystar was um, operations for a membership um, platform where we have 300,000 subscribers. We would look at whether, okay, let's say Brian maybe doesn't pay as much rent as Chris using that as an example, but what Brian does do is attends all of the events. And what Brian does do is actually dedicate some of his time to giving back to that community. So whilst transactionally, Brian may not, and the segment that adds up to Brian, uh, the sum of all parts, may not add as much commercial value at your year over year looking at your operating budget. When you start to look at the more lifetime value of them, which is very tricky to do, it's exceptionally tricky at Graystar, by the way, because like Chris was saying, there might be, and, and, and Brian with Nido, we've got different brands. You've got GSA, you've got Nido, we've got different brands. So it can be quite difficult to connect those. Um, but how we assess the value, very commercial, but we are also in a position of trying to assess more of the lifetime value that comes with that. And that doesn't always mean this obvious financial benefit to you today. It could be beyond that. 
sorry, just finally mute button. Thanks for that, Matt. I think the other, um, the other side of this is, you know, we get a, get a lot of, uh, of students who have stayed at Nido before. And they, and they have relatives that have stayed at Nido before and or, and sisters. And at some point there will be parents who've stayed at Nido before. And so we, we do see value in, in, in that. So the cynical marketing value for that, a good word of mouth referrals is still, is still one of the main sources of students coming to your residence. And um, we have had things in the past, like an unlimited, unlimited guest policy. We have held events and invited externals to, to Nido as well to continue to allow people to bring their friends in, be proud of their home and continue building their community. So that's been a big part of it. But I, because we're, again, we're, we're, we're from like Grace Lowe's interest in multiple different residential asset classes. And um, we, we've got this kind of view or this vision that, vision that eventually branded offerings and there will be people who want to stay in student and then maybe graduate into co-living and then maybe come through co-living into the, into the apartment sphere, uh, might go out over to a single family home rented product. And I think... At time, there will be the point where people are lifetime renters. It's many people do rent for life already, but the, the, I think I think the prevalence of that may increase over time, and with underlying property valuations increasing, and in the event that there were any, um, any increase to interest costs, then people would be would be um, more and more people would be choosing to rent as a as a lifestyle choice. And if you're doing that, then why wouldn't you rent the things that you're familiar with? So maybe if you if you bought a small Mercedes and now you need a four-wheel drive, you might go to the Mercedes garage first. Why would you not start off in a Nido student building and then move into another Nido co-living or around till co-living building and help to build that community? So I think long-term there is there is potentially a value, potentially something there. We're not seeing it yet because the assets are so big and the geographical nature has them, has them you know, you're led by where you can buy land and where you can develop. Uh, however long, long term, there must be value in creating that community and people being Nido alumni who, who continue to participate in a network over time. So um, because our focus is narrower in terms of asset class, we're only really thinking about students and the lifetime value of a student is, of course, hugely important for us. So that re really means, you know, throwing back a little bit to what Matt said about retention of those students from one year to the next. Um, but we know that there is also a natural churn in students where they get to a point where they want to go and, you know, break out on their own and experience a different sort of living that is perhaps less um, supervised or less perceived to be supervised. So that's one element of that. But we definitely, you know, the, the, the retention metrics that Matt mentioned are absolutely, you know, you know front and center. But when you create a community, it's sort of sticky. And so you, they, they tend to want to stay together and be proud of belonging to that um, uh, community. And I, I read one, um, somebody called it tribing, right? So, you know, human beings, our verb is, you know, birds flock, humans tribe. And I kind of quite like that idea of, you know, once you build your tribe, you kind of have a, a real deep relationship and a long relationship with that tribe. So the challenge for us then um, globally is how do we make that tribe mobile globally to do several things, to facilitate the changing nature of higher education, which is becoming more and more global. Not only do kind of campuses um, move now, for example, there is, a, there is a campus of the Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland in Dubai, of all places. You know, we, uh, we have um, uh, New York University has global campuses around the world and so on. People move 
within the same university to different geographical locations, but also move within institutions as well, facilitated by kind of, you know, European programs like Bologna and so on. So, you know, these people are moving, they're mobile, and we want to make sure that wherever they go globally, there is a, a GSA property that they can stay at, and then they can get that same feeling of community that they had in the previous one. Similar to what Brian just said, intergenerationally, we're see, seeing it from a bit of a shorter time span. So they're going from year one to year two, perhaps in the same building. And then as they look to go and study abroad or do a semester abroad, they can get that same immediate sense of community and, uh, so, and so on in, in one of our other buildings elsewhere in the world. And there is a kind of... Uh, a digital uh, element over, 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 you know, overarching that as well, which Matt talked to earlier, but, so I won't go through that again, but essentially that integration of those two things into one kind of ecosystem is where, where the, the, power of that, um, the power of that lies for us. But, and, and, and then one more final point on, on the question of community and the value of it then is taking it one step beyond uh, looking within our four walls. This is also about looking exterior to those four walls and being part of the university community on the one side. And we've done that um, through um, uh, public-private partnerships. In fact, Brian and I did several of these together when we used to work together and, and, and very successfully so. We and But also being part of the, the local community of the city that you might be in. Now, it's very difficult when you're in a capital city, when there's a high level of cultural offering or sporting offering and so on, um, and you have less perhaps of a responsibility there because there's so much people can find for themselves. But when you're in a smaller place, you actually become a real key element of the economic motor of that city. So I'm thinking of um, one we did in, in Alcalá de Henares, which is about 25 kilometers outside of Madrid. It's a kind of dormitory town, but it's also a beautiful UNESCO heritage site. And, and the building that we built there is right in the city center. And we bring in the city every single year. We offer the space that we have and have the privilege to have for free to the local authorities to run part of their different cultural activities and, and so on through the summer. So it's about engaging internally the community, but also reaching out to the wider community as well. Thank you so much to the three of you. And I am glad to hear that, you know, this is also part of eco-living, how we engage with the community uh, within the building, within the PBSA, but also outside respecting and engaging uh, with people who surrounded the, the building. And how important is also the communication with private and public institutions and the relationship with them. And, and, uh, and it's, it's not easy to, to go global with a community, but I think also with this transition to virtual, um, uh, we can see some operators uh, uh, succeeding in this. So I wish you all the best. And uh, my colleague Frank has a question, so I will leave him go ahead. Yeah, um, of course. Uh, yeah, and thanks, Matt, Chris, and, and Brian for for the commentary. There's a few. There's a couple things that really interested me, and is more so just um, talking about the value of of what your offering has has changed, or the perceived value of of what your offering to your end user has has changed specifically over the last year or so, um, and maybe more focused on 
um, these kind of like intangibles like community compared to like square footage or um, marble countertops or something like that. And I think there's something really interesting about um, student housing that I don't know as much about. And I would be curious to, to get your take on this is, is you really have two stakeholders here. You have the student who is your end user, and then you have someone else who's probably fitting the bill, maybe mom and dad. And so whenever you um, are proposing these new value propositions for the end user, how do you get the parent um, to buy in um, to actually pay for maybe a room that is more expensive, but smaller in terms of square feet and, and shared amenities and that sort of thing would be really interested to hear what you have to say. Um, from my, I, I'll do my version uh, quick because I don't think I'll have as much to add value as, as, as Chris and Brian here. So um, what's not changed as far as the parents are concerned, it's it remained consistent is the safety and security that, um, PBSA offers their their loved one effectively. Um, so it's a bit more objective um, in some of our marketing communications. If we know that we are communicating or trying to resonate with a parent, we may be more we may be more functional. We may be we may be less uh, less emotive with it. We may focus less on the lifestyle and more the practical elements of it. Uh, but to be perfectly honest, we'll dovetail between that as well and, and offer that kind of content to the student. But yeah, some of those hygiene factors have absolutely remained the same. Uh, yeah, so I'll, go, I'll answer that question slightly, slightly different, uh, Frank. So what you find in many of these um, locations where we offer purpose-built student accommodation is that the the total value add when you total it all up isn't isn't that far moved from uh, a residence in the street. So, so you know, if you add on the, you know, a gym membership, if you add on utilities, if you add on the broadband elements, and if you add on the fact that all all of these are top quality um, uh, components, um, if you add on insurance, if you add on maintenance, maintenance, what value you attribute to that, and and the fact you don't have to limit your energy energy consumption and you then you, you kind of overlay it with a bit of community and a bit of a great experience and the fact that your entire peer group is uh, is probably living in a residence like this and you don't have to find other parties to join up with and you don't have to take a head tenancy risk and then you're liable for the rent if your buddy moves out and w when you add all those things together and that's why we're not we are competitors in the, in the field and we fight for students to rent our, our residences. Actually, it's more the house in the street and the apartment in the street that that is is um, is losing students to our kind of product product because students want what you know they, they want what we offer. Now the rooms are reasonably well optimized. So whilst your bedroom might be smaller, actually your your access to those common spaces, which are kind of I view them as kind of a, a case areas. Um, so you might have a large X, Y, Z, you know, room in your, in your apartment, but you might never use it. Whereas our, our buildings are far more optimized. You, you can use it, but you share it with lots of people. Um, so actually the, I, the, the argument hasn't become, the headline argument might be, hey, it's 150 pounds or euros to stay in, uh, in the GSA building in Madrid, whereas I can rent an apartment um, euro for euro equivalent for 100. Well, actually, really quickly, you, you do the maths and it really adds up really sensibly. 
And from a parent's perspective, so if you, but if you, when you survey the students, you say, what, what do you want from your accommodation? They say, number one, location. We tend to be better at location than the apartments and houses because we're in, tend to be in city centres. Number two, uh, and most, and actually number one for parents is security. And we offer that 24-hour security. And if you lose your key, somebody's there to let you in. And if you get into any sort of trouble, you can come to reception and the guy's there, to, the concierge or the security person is there to assist you as well. So, so the offering has been fine, fine to point where it's definitely what students want. Um, or not all students, but most students. As Chris said, some will graduate through purpose-built student accommodation into the, the, the regular residential market. But also, we're, we're, we're kind of, sort of residential, right? So the students who were there last year might still be there. A lot of the cities where we, we build buildings have very high graduate retention rates. So where students would have gone, they, the, 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 the graduates are occupying that housing stock and squeezing out the students who would be coming into that housing stock. So it's very much we're solving a problem for people and, and students recognize that. And we, we offer a service level through some, some visual elements and some intangible elements, and they, they're very around the margins. Um, but the value proposition uh, as understood by uh, your average 18-year-old across Europe, is that they see the value in living in purpose, purpose-built. And I mean, there isn't that much of a cost differential. They're just maybe living in a slightly more optimised space. Chris, what do you think? Uh, yeah, look, again, uh, I, I completely agree with what you guys have said. I think just a, a few extra things to add. One is that there is a cultural expectation as well, on the one hand, in some places where you are expected to leave home and go to university and there's an expectation that you will be housed in some sort of collective housing in your first year, whether that is private purpose-built student accommodation or whether that is university-owned halls. And in some cases, like many campus universities in the States, there's actually an obligation for first years or freshmen to live on campus. So as Brian said, our competitor set really is not necessarily each other, but um, other alternatives and substitutes to us. Um, I, I really liked the, the, the point about safety and security is absolutely is a qualifying factor for parents. You, you, you're just not even on the radar if you can't provide that. Um, and and the, I kind of see it top down and bottom up. So you, when you're communicating with parents, it's very much bottom up. It's Maslowian, it's safety, security, it's quality of uh, stay, it's quality of food if you offer food, it's and all of those things that add together um, to create this picture. Whereas when you flip that on its head and you talk to the students, it's very much about the aspirational elements of living in that space together and all the community things we've been discussing. They really don't care about safety and security until they need it. Right. And then they're very, very happy to have it, as Brian mentioned with his bouncer example earlier. Um, but I think there's another stakeholder in this, right, which is the university itself, okay? And the university is, is pretty much the biggest single influencer, um, if, if we can use that term, on, this, on the parents' and the students' decisions. So if you've got a kind of quality mark from the university that says, this is a, uh, a place that I recommend and we stand behind and they've come to visit, they've taken their own photos and they've done their own kind of due diligence on you, that's a real uh, influence, uh, um, uh, kind of good prescription to, to, as a mark of quality. But also, of course, 
you know, they're going to be interested in all those elements of that scale. So they have, you have to have the safety and security. You have to have the kind of quality of fit, fixtures and fittings that is commensurate with the brand level that that university itself has. But also they want to know about, you know, what are, what's the extra thing my students are going to get out of living with you guys. And so um, I think that, you know, that, that's absolutely fundamental not to ignore them, even though they may not be your direct customer, um, they're absolutely there in, in that triangle of, of consumer groups. Um, and then Brian mentioned the, the affordability thing, or at least the distance thing. And I think here, yeah, absolutely, there is a tension between square footage on the one hand and distance or travel time on the other hand. Now, you know, it's much, much cheaper to build in zone six in London um, than it is to build in zone one. Uh, how long do you want to spend on the metro getting to your place of study? You know, it, and what, you know, what is that kind of tolerance level that you have between square footage and cost? And that's, I suspect, the same in virtually all asset classes um, and, and certainly for co-living as well. So, um, yeah, the, the, that's just what I wanted to add to the guys. So thank you so much, guys. Uh, we didn't even have time to answer some questions and... And to go to the breaking rules, but I'm glad because that means that it was super interesting. And for any for any participant who wish to follow up and ask any questions, just we let the the, the contact the, the the LinkedIn of our panelists in the chat, and ourselves we will be glad as well if, if we can assist. I just wanted to thank you all. Uh, thank you to Chris, to Brian, to Matthew. I have a lot of fun. I, and, uh, and you guys, you know, um, have so much experience that I was just, you know, writing down ideas and thank you. Thank you very much. And also thank you to Frank for the assistant and to Alex. Uh, apologies that we really didn't have time. Uh, but yeah, I hope to see you guys soon. And, and uh, yeah, we are here uh, for uh, anything you need. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us today. And from all of us here at CoLive, we hope you learned a lot and maybe even picked up a few pieces of wisdom to help expand the CoLiving movement. To check out the CoLive membership that will allow you to connect with other leading CoLiving professionals, or even just to stay updated on future podcasts and upcoming events, head over to CoLive.org. Again, that's co-liv.org. Thanks again for tuning in, and we look forward to having you back for our next episode. Thank you.